But if you don't keep changing things, you might not know. You might be slightly better out there. You don't have to change your whole system. Just start tweaking bits of it. And then, you know, if that works, tweak a bit more. Just keep tweaking. And then all of a sudden you've found you've changed your whole system and it hasn't fallen down on you. Hello and welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew. And I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative and enjoyable farming systems. I'm joined this evening by Adam Rivett, all the way from, where would you say, Adam, Waimati, outskirts of Waimati? Yeah, outskirts, yeah, right at Morvan. Out at Morvan, that's better. And, um, and, and Adam's got a really inspiring story where he went from being the local headmaster or principal to now farming in his own right and even a, a winning an award recently for best New Zealand sausage in the beef category, sausage of the year. So welcome, Adam. Oh, thanks, John. Good, good to see you again. Yeah. And, um, and tell us a bit about the butchery. Tell us a bit about your butchery and, um, and the recent award you won. Oh, yes. So um, we're now five months into um, a butchery. So we've put a butchery on our farm. So it's a partnership between myself and um, my wife and my brother and his wife. So my brother's a butcher. He's come back from Australia and we've got the farming side of it. And we've put the butchery on the farm and um, doing it five months now. And yeah, a couple of weeks ago, we got, um, yeah, we took out the best uh, traditional beef sausage in the New Zealand Beef um, New Zealand Sausage Awards, so we had to go up to Auckland, so yeah, so we're quite pleased about that. And tell us a bit about what inspired you to start, you know, before we get into the farm and what you're up to on the farm and that whole journey, I really want to hear what what had you start the butchery? Tell us a bit about the butchery and and, and your inspirations for, for starting. Um. Well, I think it's just an opportunity to do the family thing, really, first and foremost. So um, it's something that my brother and I had talked about oh, for a number of years. He's been in Sydney doing high-end meats for, oh, it must be almost 10 years now. And he wanted to come home. And um, we sort of thought, oh, well, maybe the timing's right. And we looked what uh, what's happening overseas with micro-butcheries and the move uh, towards sort of more local stuff and people having a bit more of an idea of where their food's coming from. And... Um, we thought, oh, well, it's probably time to start doing something like that in, um, in our neck of the woods. So, yeah, he came home from Sydney. Um, we hatched up this scheme. And, um, yeah, five months down the road, really. It's just a um, pretty simple model. It's two blokes, a 20-foot container, some animals and a piece of land, really. It's not, it's not, it's not rocket science. I'll be straight up with you, Jono. Oh, mate, I love it. And has it been difficult? Like, what are some of the hurdles you've got to jump over to go from an idea... And you know, good good animals or you know, good breeds of animals and, and a mixture of the two to okay, we're gonna now create some products and make it available to people. Um, yeah, I think obviously everything's red tape, especially around food. So it's a bit of bureaucracy getting your your licenses and stuff through. Um, it was a bit frustrating, took a lot longer than we thought, and it's quite an expensive process, really. Um, but yeah, we got we got through that. Um, well, difficulties, I suppose. Um, well, we have no money, so that's a great difficulty. But anyway, um, we, <laughs> well, when you put it like all you need is, is a couple of guys in a 20 foot container, it, it begs to ask the question, you know, maybe there, there aren't too many apart from the bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean, when we look at all our competition, they've all got much deeper pockets than we have. You've got, to look, you've got the works on one side, the supermarkets on the other, and, you know, all these um, firms are huge doing their thing with a lot of, yeah, a lot of money behind them. So that's um, that's a challenge. But I think I think people like, I wouldn't say rough and ready, but I think people like the honesty, you know, of um, what we're doing and, um, you know, they know that we, you know, we're sort of really local and just giving it a go and, and doing it, you know, and I think people... People like that. I think sometimes you can be a little bit too polished. And I think sometimes people like just that integrity, that honesty, that, that realness of, you know, of just 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 getting out and doing it, really. Yeah, and maybe a little bit of rough and ready as well. I think it resonates for a lot of people. I remember I took a bit of a lesson. I sold real estate for a while, and um, one of the guys who I, um, who I was training, and he took me out, and he's a real guy. He's good at what he does, actually. 
And anyway, he had to do a renewal contract. And anyway, he was absolutely cracked with paperwork and he didn't have the right forms and that. So he had, but he had a napkin in the front of the truck and he got out the napkin and he wrote, wrote on the top of the napkin, I son, so, you know, renew my my agency with such and such, such and such. Got the guy to sign it and they were, everyone was quite happy. And I thought to myself, yeah, it doesn't, you know, it was that, just that honesty that, you know, they obviously trusted each other and they went to work hung up about bits of paper and stuff. And I think that's, you know, I, I, yeah, I re always remember that. Uh, yeah, you don't actually need to have the shiny shoes and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, Adam. And, um, and, and as far as, like, you said local people, what's your market for your meat products and, and what are you producing what are your cuts and and other than obviously oh, some yeah. killer beef sausages tell us a bit about what what people can purchase from your butchery and what's it called so butchery is just um chop butchery so are we um are online so we just www.chopbutchery.co.nz so uh we are a full animal butchery obviously so we do uh pork lamb and beef um the lamb and beef comes from us and if it doesn't come from us it comes from farms you know local guys that we know that are working with us they're quite part of wanting to grow you know good, good animals quality beef you know they want they're wanting to be part of the story and get feedback on the quality of their beef and all the things that you know they just want to be hands-on really rather than than perhaps more than what they could be if they just sent it straight to the works and got a printout so they sort of the sort of guys you want to want to be part of that so um, we offer all the all, yeah, a heap of stuff. All beef, obviously pork and lamb. Um, obviously a heap of sausage. I think Eddie does about 15 different varieties of sausages. Um, you know, all, all your steak cuts, all your roasts, all your chops. Yep, we do special stuff. Eddie does Argentinian cuts for the local guys when they're doing their, um, wanting to do the Argentinian barbecues. We do all of that sort of stuff. So pretty much we do most things really. Um, smokes his own bacon. Um, yeah, I mean, we're just a, just a full butchery, really, doing um, what full butcheries do. As far as, you know, a lot of people obviously get their meat from the supermarket or maybe they might go to a local butchery. How do people get to you? Yeah, so we attend both the local farmers' markets. Um, so we, we do the Omaru one on a, um, on a Sunday and we do Waimati on a, on a Saturday. And then, yeah, during the week we're online, but we're just in the process actually of, of, of expanding and we've just, um, well, should be arrived this week. Hopefully we've just bought ourselves a big mobile butchery basically on wheels. So we'll be carting that around and um, being at different places and, and popping that on social media and people can come and come and see us in various places. So um, that's sort of the next step for us. So, um, yeah, we don't have a shop as such. We looked at that model, but... Um, the costs of doing the shop thing is are quite high. Uh, we felt we could do it cheaper at home, and you know it's just a lot less travelling for us. So we're quite happy. We roll out of bed and roll down a hill and roll into the butchery. Really, it's nicer at the moment. It's a bit warmer, but um, <laughs> it's a bit cold in winter. But um, yeah, it's look. Yeah, everything has its good side and its and its bad side. And there's been some stuff that's been quite tough. You know, like it's and we're still it's still a bit tough. Like we're both you know, working big hours, so it's sort of seven days a week at the moment, and we have done for the last sort of five months just to get it up and running, but we're sort of at probably tipping point now where, you know, we're about to maybe even start employing some staff, and um, yeah, things might start getting a little bit easier, but you know, you put those hard yards in at the start just to get it going, and then once it's going, you you can ease back a bit, so that's sort of, sort of the plan anyway, but um, yeah, I mean, I think people have sort of been have warmed to us, I suppose, because we've got, I think you get more control over the animals, do you know what I mean? Like your, your name's on it. When people see you at the farmer's market, you know, they're either looking at one guy who cut, who cut the animals up and they're looking at the other guy who grew the animals. So, you know, like there's a real honesty there. Like he doesn't get any more honest. I mean, if you, if you take over, you know, pick up the packet and uh, the meat don't look that good, there's only two people that's his fault <laughs> and they're both there. So, um, yeah, I think that's I think that's why people like it. It's just that honesty, really. And we, we vouch, obviously, for the guys we get if we if the animals aren't always off our farm. We vouch for the guys who you know where we get them from, and they and we tell them the good, bad, the ugly. We send them photos of their steak. We we say oh, they look the marbling's good or it's not, the colour's good or it's not, or the fat's too high or the set the next thing, and that yeah, informs them with what they're doing. 
you know, and what they're wanting to change. And we have all sorts. We've got an organic guy doing the organic thing, which is really interesting. And we've got regenerative guys doing the regenerative thing. We've got some traditional guys. Um, all do different things, different ways. It's just, um, yeah, just interesting, really. I bet. I bet. And um, and tell us a bit about the animals on your place and, and maybe a little bit about your, about your farm as well. Please, Adam. Okay, so we, uh, so I suppose we're all heritage animals, really, when you think about it, our sheep, so we were sheep and beef, um, so our sheep of Wilshire, so the good old shedders, around the Roman times, uh, old Roman, they, 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 when, when the Romans went, they, and then, um, yeah, we've got the pole variety, so the ones they took the, took the horns out of them, um, so we've got about 100, I don't know, we're the biggest place in the world, so we've got about 100 breeding ewes. Um, and then we've got, on top of that, we run, uh, I run two herds of Galloway cattle. So I've got um, a purebred um, belted Galloway herd, and I've also got um, a smaller white Galloway herd. So um, the, the belted Galloways are the ones that go through the butchery, and the white Galloways really are there for locks. We sort of tame those up and make them really friendly, and they go around. We've got some accommodation units as well, so they they get tamed up to... Um, yeah, it's a bit urinated by the by, by the visitors. Yeah, and so a bit of background on the property. So you, you bought the property and was leased out for a bit. Is that correct? Yeah, for a long time. So we bought this um, used to be known as the teachers' block. So both my wife and I are both teachers. We're not a, we're not farmers at all, and don't have a farm farming background at all. Didn't grow up on farms. They grew up in the towns and. But I did, I became principal of the local school here. So we country school and just happened one day that the board chair was um, selling some land. And he said to me, oh, you know what, you need some land. And I sort of looked and I said, all right, we'll go and have a wee look. So we did. And um, so, yeah, we bought this place um, and, yeah, we sort of leased it out while we were overseas doing ROE. And, you know, when I was busy working as a principal for a while and we just, Beaver away and just 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 saved and just had a bit of an end, you know, this end goal in mind that one day we'd like to farm it ourselves. But it's only a small block of land. Like it's only I've only got 64 hectares here. So it's not huge. And of course, New Zealand farming systems are about quantity and quickly, you know, that's how farmers have traditionally, you know, made ends meet, haven't they? So we had to look outside the square on what we could do on such a small block of land. Um you know, and we're very lucky that we're on a hill and we've got some pretty good views. So we capitalised on that with our accommodation and that's gone quite well. And then our location is just off State Highway 1 and we're very central. So getting things to places and couriers and that's quite good for us. Like we're, we're, we're good access to Christchurch and Dunedin and also into the central, into Queenstown and things like that. We're sort of equal distance between those three major points in the South Island. So that sort of helps us out as well. So we just sort of thought, you know, and the Wilshire sheep really were a decision because 20 years ago when we chose our breed of sheep, not being farmers, not knowing much about sheep or wool or things like that, I just looked at wool prices and couldn't understand why people would worry about wool when it wasn't worth any money. And sadly, 20 years later, it's still not much better, but hopefully it will get better, I really do. I think wool's a great thing. We package all our meat in wool boxes, wool line boxes. I mean, it's a good, wool's a good thing. I mean, it, but um, so yeah, and it was just, some, it's just easy care for us when you're working off farm and you haven't got a lot of time to be on farm. You don't really want to be shearing and crutching and dagging when you don't really need to. So that was the decision behind them. And the Galloways is uh, just the quality of meat thing. And I think the, um, they're just so unknown for New Zealand. The New Zealand farmers just don't give them a good, a good go, I don't think. Like overseas, if you look at Germany and Britain and even Australia, the States, you know, Galloway meat's really, really got a good name. It's quite renowned. But here in New Zealand, they they look at them, they think it's a small animal, slow growing. Why would, would you want to go there? But I think time to change now. And I think from an environmental standpoint, being a slightly smaller animal, medium, but easier on the ground, they've got a good reputation overseas as being really good browsers coming from the, you know, that cold Scottish winters where they just had to eat anything to survive and they take that you know we don't have the best pasture here which we're working on it but they work well on a regenerative system because they're quite good browsers they quite they don't mind what they eat most people have Galloways will have other cattle as well and they use the Galloways to clean up behind them because the Galloways just don't seem to mind and um, 
yeah, I've been quite surprised at how little we've had to feed our Galloways compared to um, the dairy cross beef that we used to do. I used to raise about 300 um, before we got into Galloways. I used to raise about 300 um, dairy cross beef calves. Um, and, you know, just you really had to keep feed up to those guys. The, the Belties are much, um, seem to do a lot, you know, seem to do really well on next to nothing. So the input's a lot a lot less really with them so yeah they might be a little bit slower but the the meat's really good and um yeah the, the inputs are a lot less so i think from an environmental standpoint they sort of stack up now which is you know perhaps they weren't considered back in the day it reminds me of a actually something i saw on a fish and chip shop wall uh in kaikoura last week where it said um we don't do fast food we do good food as fast as we can and that just came to mind yeah, I think the Galloways are like that, yeah. Oh, good old Scottish doer types, you know, and they've got good personalities and big shaggy coats and they sort of, they do their, they do their thing. Um, yeah. I mean, sure well, I, mean, the... I just enjoy farming them, to be honest with you. They're, they've got good personalities and they, um, yeah, and they look a bit different too, you know. It's quite good when, you know, I don't have the best fencing, but when you have weird, weird animals compared to all the farmers around you, if one gets out, they stick out like dog's balls, so they're easy to get back again again. And they, oh, that one of my belties has got out. I know it's one of mine because no one else has them and they stick out like, you know. So, yeah. And talk us through some of the infrastructure because I know you've put your hand to almost all of it on your farm. Take us right back to the beginning. You know, you're leasing your farm out. You built your own house. Yeah, so when we bought, when we took it, when we, were, we first got it, it was a bare piece of land. There was nothing on it. So, yeah, so the first, yeah, we've done lots of things, actually, when I think back to it. But, yeah, we've sort of shaped it like you do, um, been a working progress. So the first thing we did, we built big shed. I spent time, time building. So I've had experience in the trades as well, just, you know, working with Sparkies in, the, in London. And also um, I did, a, did a, a building apprenticeship as well. So um, sort of used a bit of that sort of knowledge as well. So we did a big shed, and then we put another house for my mother, we built a calf shed, then we built our main house, and then we built a little, another little cottage um, with a garage on the side. We were off, we were off grid for quite a long time um, before we put we built the big house and we put mains up here. So we had solar power oh, since about, since 2005, so before it was popular. So we've sort of always been sort of doing things a little bit different. And then yeah, and then we've done this accommodation unit, which we we did oh, two years ago now, and then. In the process of doing another one, except um, this one, I won't probably be doing the building work on because I just don't have the time now. So we have to farm farm by that. But I'm doing what I can. Like I did the fencing and stuff around it, but um, I certainly won't be building it as much as I thought I was going to be because I just don't have time now with the butchery doing what it's doing. So you just have to accept your limitations. So yeah, so really most of it we've done it there. We had. 25% of this place was gorse when we took it over. So we got rid of the gorse. Um, yeah, we've planted probably about um, six hectares ourselves in trees. So that was a learning curve in the middle of one winter in the snow, planting trees. I've never done that before, but um, don't know if I'd do it again, if I was to be honest with you. I think those forestry guys are, <laughs> yeah, they're pretty good at what they do, really. I think it's like anything. But no, we got it done. It's like, you know, you just set yourself a goal when you do it. But there's always things we want to do. Like we want to subdivide more and we want to be able to, so we can move our animal, you know, get really into the, you know, rotational grazing on a, on a much bigger scale without having to do all the break fencing because now they've got the butchery. We don't really have a lot, I don't have a lot of time for the farm. The farm, you know, that's why the Galloway are good and also the vultures because it sounds awful, but you can neglect them a little bit and they're still okay. Um, so they fit with the fact that I'm really busy in the butchery and can't always, you know, shift them as often things as I'd like to but um we get a bit of subdivision going it'll be good because I'll just be able to open the gate and let them through so that's the that's it that's the ultimate goal with the with the farm probably next steps is to get a bit more subdivision going so as far as you know the farm's um enterprises like you're, you're really taking responsibility for the whole thing like it, everything that you make money in off the farm is by your creation is that correct um, well, yeah, I mean, pretty much, yeah, we've taken the land and do what you can with it. I think you just got to look at your land and think, well, what, what, what's, you know, what's special about this, this, this piece of land? What, 
what can I do? And I think I think technology's helped a bit. I think, you know, some of our enterprises, you know, like I think our accommodation gets booked on the internet, for example, if we didn't have that technology around. I think those technologies have opened up opportunities for farmers to do different things with their properties. I mean, not every property is obviously suitable to have accommodation unit on it, but there's, you know, there's, there's different things you can do, but you've just got to look out side the square all the time and try and think, well, what can I do with this, this bit of land, you know? Um, they're not all square and um, flat, you know, like it's, you know, um, and uh, yeah, I think that's the, that's the key really. No, no, you know, just give it a go and see what you, what you can get out of it really. And what's been your process for getting the gorse out? Oh, well, we didn't really know what we're doing with gorse. We went to Environment Canterbury when I first started, because being a typical teacher, I thought, oh, I better get some advice. So you asked them, and, you... <laughs> and then two weeks after they'd been, they slapped us with an infringement notice telling us that we had to get our gorse off the boundaries. <laughs> Man, it cracked me up. I thought, yeah, well, we're asking for some help. And then two weeks later, they they bloody... Um, sneak us with a wet bus ticket but anyway you dogged um, yourself in yeah i dogged myself in really a bit stupid wasn't i but anyway no oh it's been a bit of a process really it's took a you know initially we used what we do um we had the big stuff so we used to fell it like trees and then um we'd let it die off obviously and burn it in piles once once the green had gone so the seeds would pop um and you know there'd be three of us um I'd be on the chainsaws. My mate would be on pulling off the, or pulling off the, the bits. And then um, Karen, my wife, because she, she's been there every step of the way, she'd be mixing up. We just had diesel and to be honest, a little bit of tort on and we just pump paint, painted onto the stumps. That's what we first started. And then slowly um, we just sort of got on top of it really. I mean, traditional, like just, yeah, we had, we had sprayed it, you know, um, but we're on top of it now that that's not such a need now really. But yeah, when we first started, mm. it was heaps and heaps and heaps of it. So we sort of, you know, you sort of learn and you sort of, you know, like you start, we started quite traditional because we didn't really, and we're sort of getting more alternative of, you know, with mind your alternative might become mainstream soon. You just don't know, do you? Um, as, we, as we go. Um, yeah, I suppose that's, yeah. So we, yeah, we got, got on top of that. And then, yeah, we're slowly working away at um, different things. Does it come back? Like, do, 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 what do you do to prevent it coming back, Adam? Or yeah, it comes that... back. Yeah, yeah. Once you've got gorse, you've always got gorse. Yeah. So, yep, it comes back. Um, always in the same areas. The seeds always on that ground, isn't it? Well, they say seventy years. So, because you know your land, you know where it's going to come back. So you go around, and I just um, either either chop it hard, um, or if, you know, I yeah, usually I usually just. I usually just got a little brush cutter with a big saw on the bottom of it, and I just just whack the hell out of it, really. Um, just mm. to fill it at ground level, really. Um, mulch it up. Um, I mean, I still, if I've got a big problem, and I know it's going to, I've still got a little bit of tool on that I will use if I have to. But I'm trying to, you know, moving away from that. Um, just changing practices, like we bought a weed wiper, for example. So rather than broadcast spraying, you know, we've still got a few thistles and things that we, you know. Um, hangover from the fact that this place was leased out for so long but you know I use the weed wiper just to make sure they use the minimum amount of stuff I can and it just goes onto the plants that I want rather than a broadcast over absolutely everything um so yeah we sort of you know changing our ways to sort of be a bit a bit different and the other thing is chemicals are bloody expensive so from a <laughs> financial point of view you want to use the absolute um least you know least amount you can and it's interesting at the markets people are very interested to know how the how the animals have been raised and what you know what what chemicals you know have been used people are you know are becoming um i don't know really aware i think of of, of chemicals on farms and things and um not wanting to eat that stuff if i was to be perfectly honest so yeah so that that helps with that i mean when you've got to market your own stuff I mean, it's a bit different, you know, you send your stuff to the works and then you fire and forget, isn't it? They take care of all the marketing. You don't have to worry about any of that, that sort of stuff. But when you've got to do the marketing as well, you've really got to affect your whole farming system because you've got to be thinking about the, what's that end user going to be asking me about this and can I back it up and justify it at the end? But, I mean, I think if you're honest, I mean, people I say, first question to get is, are you organic? But we're not organic. And I'm quite honest about it. So, no, we're not organic. We're, we're moving regenerative way. But we're not definitely not organic. So, um, and most people are quite happy with that as long as they know that you're making some sort of an effort. I think. 
um, around around your food. But I mean, like I've got a mate who's a big, he's got a lot of, um, he's got a big sheep farm. And as I said to him, look, it doesn't cut cut the mustard now to say our lambs, New Zealand lamb in New Zealand, because that means diddly squat. I've got to, we've got to say more. We need to be able to say with the breed. We've got to be able to say how it was raised, where it came from, all of that sort of stuff. So you, yeah, you need to, you need to have all that stuff thought out as well. And I took for granted uh, until recently, like, I mean, as recently as last night, that I, I just assumed all of our meat in New Zealand was was uh, grass-fed. Like, I thought, I always used to think it was such a silly thing, like seeing grass-fed beef on a on a package. I'm like, we're all grass-fed. I learned last night that, no, we're not. There's no, like... There's, yeah, there's a percentage that's not. It's quite interesting, like, because Eddie came from, um, obviously, the Australian system. Of course, a lot of their beefs grain fed so grass fed stuff is a real thing in aussie for example compared to what it would be here like we don't obviously you know because you do most people think oh well, new zealand was one you know one big farm lots of green grass we grow animals on grass but it's not always the case but um yes yeah, and it's interesting what the animals get fed on how that affects the meat and the temperament and a lot in a very short space of time like you know We've had to say to some of the guys, look, don't send us in. If, if your animal's got bad temperament, mate, just it won't be good beef. And it's so true, eh? Like, you just, you know, you see the meat and it's dark in colour and the texture's sticky and the pH is all out. And, yeah, but to actually, you hear that stuff, but to actually see it impact on the end product is quite incredible. You know, like, you want good, relaxed, laid-back animals, really. That's, you know, the key to it, that have been well-fed and, you know, haven't had too much stress in their life. And tell us, like, is it is it just grass that your animals are eating? Tell us yeah, a little about your pastures. Just, yeah, animals, animals just eat grass, yeah. And not mm. the best grass. I've got probably the three paddocks we've done regeneratively now with about, I think there's 28 species in, in them, and that's, that, you know, we've made mistakes with that. But, um, you know, we've learned with that. And then, yeah, a lot of the back of the farm's difficult to get to because um, we're quite hilly and quite steep. So a lot of it, to be honest, is is, is rubbish. It's um, a lot of brown top. It's um, yeah, they're old, worn out stuff, you know that. Um, but yeah, there's a, a lot of that's what that's all the animals eat. We don't they don't get a they don't get a lot really. I'll throw some um, mineral blocks at them. Um, they'll get a bit of seaweed. Um, yeah, that type of thing. But yeah, they don't they don't they don't get a lot really. Um, I don't overstock myself. I think I think less is better. Um, because it you know helps keep your your diseases and stuff down, and you can get animals away quicker. So I don't don't really think it costs me compared to having heaps of animals on and then them taking a long time to get up to weight and being mm. under a lot of pressure. So I, I prefer to go that way. And also, it's all around my workload really because because I am so busy now with the butchery. I can't really spend you know I don't want lots and lots of animals. I want animals taking care of themselves and doing well while I'm you know not absent, but you know, busy, you know, busy doing other things because then, yeah, and it seems, it seems to work, but you make, that's the thing, isn't it? You make, you make your farming schedule fit your, fit your, your lifestyle, don't you, at the end of the day? And are you working off farm anymore, Adam, or no, you're, you're no, on farm no, full that time? Was, no, that was the goal. So it's been a long process getting to being on farm and I'm lucky my wife still, she still teaches, so she's, She's, I mean, she helps as a team, so she brings in a bit of extra money just to, while we're getting these ventures going. Um, but no, I've um, yeah, finally weaned myself off off farm work, so I don't do any off farm work now. I'm here or in the butchery um, all the time. I have to say it's a bit twenty four seven at the moment, but that's you know that's okay. That was always the goal. Like, it's, and it's stepping stones. I was full time work, and then I was doing the farm part time, selling real estate, and then. I've, you know, got the butchery up and running and I was able to give away the, the real estate and just do the butchery and the farm. So, yeah, everything I do now is here on the place. And the family's aligned, Adam? Yeah, yeah. My daughter loves the place. Like, she, um, yeah, she, she's, she loves being on the farm and doing the farm sort of thing. So, and, and my brother lives here at the moment. He's in the cottage with his wife, you know. So, everyone's here. It's a real, not quite a commune, but, um, you know. And your mum too. Yes, my mother lives at the bottom, yeah. She lives in the wee, uh, the other wee cottage that we built for her a few of those years ago. So, yeah, they're all here. So, yeah, we, 
we walk down the road and she makes us cups of tea and then a smoko and we get a lunch, nice lunch. Mum makes us a nice lunch and then we walk back down the road to the butchery again. And oh yeah, she's um yeah, it's um but look, we've done everything we can to keep costs down. So you know, sort of that's all everyone pulls together to help out really like we you know, mum provides the food and the smoko facilities and the toileting and then we you know, which is just next door to where the butchery is. So um yeah, it seems, seems to work. We haven't fallen out yet, and I'm working pretty close proximity with my brother. And we're, yeah, and there's, and there's lots of sharp knives <laughs> around too. So, um, <laughs> but, um, and he's the butcher, yeah. isn't he? He's he's the good one with the knives. You want to keep him on side? Oh yeah, and uh, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, in this venture, it's him. I mean, he's. I'm doing everything I can to support him, make sure he gets good beef. For example, his animals animals are good that are coming into the butchery. And I just, you know, help him with um, whatever I can. But he's the, you know, he, he's the one with the knife. And um, you said before that you used to rear about 300 um, dairy cross calves. Are you still rearing calves, Adam? No, no, I don't, don't rear calves any longer. I look, no, don't have time for that. Um, oh, I mean, I did that for about, what did we do that for? Six, seven years, to be honest. But, yeah, we found it. Like, and I hadn't reared calves before, so you know we did it. I knocked off school, so my last my last year as being principal, we did about fifty calves, and I was still working. And then the next year we we cranked it up. But I don't know. I find the New Zealand farming system's not good at looking everyone not not very good at looking after everyone in 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 the system in the line. Like you'd be rearing calves, and it's bloody hard work rearing calves. Like labour. Labour intensity, I don't think there's a time in the animal's life that is as labour as intensive as rearing a calf like that. You know, they get the scars or something goes wrong. Or, But the thing is, you'd put all that work in, it's about three months of hard graft, but you never actually, when you, you know, you never, each, each year, there were a couple of good years, but five of the seven years were terrible. Like, you know, like you would couldn't get a good price at the end of the day. And when you tallied up all your labour, you just, you think, well, why, why was I doing this? You know, what? So I just pay the cows to do it now, and they do a much better job than I ever could, you know. So you know, I don't even got a calf with a scare. So it's um, nice, you know. But yeah, I don't know. I think if it's like everything, like we try and look after the farmers who are supplying us beef, and the same thing as we we expect them to look after us because you know if they're too greedy with what they want, or you know they're not not prepared to work with us, like we we'll, we do our absolute best to pay them a premium. Um, for example, to make, you know, because we want to look after them as well. But it, it's all everyone's got to work together. Because if we don't all work together, it doesn't work. And I think that's the thing with the calf rearing is the next guys. You know, the, you never got as a calf rearer, you, you never felt that they, you know, you ever looked after. So I mean, as a result, look at this year, we've got they've got you know real shortage of calf rearers. I mean, I've been rung up lots of times. Will, will I rear calves for people? But you know, and the price, they say, oh, the prices are really good this year, but next year, you know, you get enough on it, but it'll go down again. You know, like you've got to, I don't know, you just got to build relationships and people have got to look after each other in the line. Mm. Can't be and you're able to, way. yeah, for sure. And for your for your farmers that, that are supplying um, animals to you, are you able to sort of more or less match the works or... How does that yeah, work? Oh, yeah, yeah, they don't get paid any less than the works, absolutely not. In fact, they probably get paid a little bit more. Um, yeah, we try, yeah, we just, yeah, I mean, we wanted to, at the initially, as far as, say, paying out for beef, is we wanted to, one thing I found farming is the inconsistency of, of, of price, you know, like you can rear an animal one year and it's worth 50 bucks more than it was the year, or 50 bucks less or whatever, but your costs are still relative, and so one year's good and one year's bad, and if you can try and smooth the bumps you know the humps and the hollows out so we started this year thinking well look, we'll, we'll set a premium and we'll pay about 30 or 40 cents above what the works were paying for the year to rule but what we found is beef prices have gone so high that we actually haven't been able to maintain it and we've basically just had to at this point in time match what you know the works are paying and it is a bit of a worry you know lamb for example is a very difficult meat to make any money off like lamb is our least profitable um meat to be honest with you um because it, it is so high i mean it was 9.50 you know it's it's you know it, i do worry that if, if if um but you know meat prices continue to 
you know, in the direction they are and keep going up, there'll be a lot of people who can't afford to buy meat. We're already seeing like at the farmers markets, people, I think that's why we're doing okay is people are prepared to eat less meat, but they want a better quality product. And I mm. think that's where it's going, but you're also going to have a lot of people that won't be able to afford meat at all if it keeps going the way it is. And I understand because obviously I'm a farmer as well about the costs and all of those sorts of things, but it is, yeah, it's, you know, when you see those, you know, them growing meat and petri dishes and all that stuff that does, that makes my, um, stomach tune um i can sort of understand why they would be doing that for the masses but it's you know yeah it's a bit of a worry I, yeah but yeah it's just we just have to wait and see but i can't see meat prices coming back anytime soon to be honest i think it's a one-way it's a one-way trip and is it you down there at the markets yourself adam like having mm. those conversations yeah hell yeah it's just eddie and i we just go down so if, if it's not Eddie and I, um, Jackie or Karen will go down with one of us. Yeah, so we're just at the markets talking about the animals and, you know, educating people about Galloway beef and showing them the marbling in the packet and talking about why why they marble and what marbling, why marbling is good and the difference between black fat and white fat and how black fat's okay and white fat's not so good and all of that sort of stuff. And, yeah, I've had a real education because, yeah, I didn't realise half the stuff because you don't, you know, it's a whole different world when you start you know cutting animals up and looking at the meat and um all, all, all the components with it so um yeah it's yeah quite it's quite different really and what makes a beautiful steak what makes a beautiful cut of meat in your world now given what you've learned in your in your short you know full uh, my, steam short, adventures my, five months, my crash course yeah um <laughs> yeah well like, I mean, when we're looking at us because from for me, it's like, you know, I love the taste of like marbled steak and, and you know, I don't really know much more about it other than it tastes good. And then, yeah. I think, and then I've like, had a piece of steak before that was, um, that was like really like yellowy um, fat and marble. And it was just the most beautiful bit of beef I've ever had. But I don't know what caused that or like what, whether that's a good thing or not. I think the number one, what, you know, to get good beef, I think the number one, like, like obviously we do Galloway and we believe in them. Um, but I mean, the next guy believes in Angus or the next guy believes in Wagyu or, you know, everyone has their things that they they do and the reasons, you know, why they do it. I think it, I think it comes down to the temperament of the animal and how it's been raised and fed is probably the number one reason to give you a good steak. And, you know, if you get all that right, you get the marbling. And it's the marbling that melts away in the meat. It's the fat that gives the meat the flavour, really. And it's that black fat that you want. You know, you don't want too much of that white fat around the outside, really. So, you know, I, I mean, you, you need different cuts. I mean, I quite like, to be honest, I quite like a good rump steak, believe it or not. You know, you get a good rump steak and it, it, they're good, um, you know. Um, but, yeah, no, it's, that, it's just how the animal's been raised, really. That's one thing I... Probably the biggest lesson I've had in five months is we've had also, you know, we've taken some highlands, took some really nice highland cattle. Someone said to us, oh, you know, come and have a look at our highlands. So we took them. Well, the meat was fantastic. It was, you know, I thought, wow, these, these are good. We've had some organic speckled park. That was really good as well. I've had, we've, we took a, bit, a couple of Angus just to, you know, just because we're just playing around, seeing what, you know, what's what really with different sorts of meat. And um, yeah, I've had, we've also had some stuff that's been terrible, you know, like, and it's, and the, and it shouldn't be because the age of the animal was right, that we thought the breed was good, all of those things, but it just comes down to, you know, the temperament and how the animal was raised, really. I think that's the, that's the two key things is if you've got highly strung animals, cull them out and get, um, change them over and change your practices so your animals aren't highly strung don't use dogs you know don't use prodders you know you just you know just just slow and slow and gently in that really and do you think that a life well lived on the farm can be ruined by that last jaunt if done poorly you know like whether it be to the works or you know do you think that can be enough to to taint um, the, the the taste of an animal I think it can impact on the on the taste, but I think if if you start with a highly strung animal and you stick them on a truck and stress it out even more, you haven't got much hope. But if you start yeah. if you start with a with an animal who's relaxed, who's had a good life, who's had all those things for you know 
then that little that little bit at the end of their life, yeah, okay, it, it may have a have a minor impact, but it's not going to be the same as an animal that's had a had a horrific, you know, you know, life on a farm. He's you know he's who is stressed, who you know hasn't been fed well, who's you know didn't know where its next meal was coming from, all of that mm. sort of stuff. So I think that, yeah, I mean, you know, we're a bit stuck in New Zealand that um, you know you know that we have to send animals to abattoirs they have to be inspected by meat inspector that's the law we can't sell the meat otherwise um, we've looked at putting a micro abattoir here i'd be really keen to do that um we, you know that's something we definitely want to look at um we just got to make sure the butchery things you know ticks along like it is, has been and continues to be a financially viable option before we start looking at spending even more money because you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars on something like that because of all the regulations that you've got to meet. Um, you know, so yeah, I think, you know, and that's the ultimate because then the animals, you know, even, you know, they, they don't have that, they don't have that trip on a truck. But, you know, and I worry when animals do go on the truck, you know, we've, you get really good transport drivers, you get terrible transport drivers. You know, I've had transport drivers who, who come out with a prod for hand-reared calves and I say, mate, look, just put the prod away, mate. <laughs> I'll walk mm. them up the truck. They don't need the prodder, you know. And, but then they obviously must be dealing with animals as well that are, you know, that are a bit, a bit you know, violent and a bit titchy and things like that. So, but yeah, you don't want that in an animal. Farmers should first and foremost make sure their animals are, you know, are used to people and are relaxed and laid back and all of those things because you certainly don't want highly strung animals. There's two things that come up for me there, Adam. First thing is um, it's a bit like, you know, soil, isn't it? Like a, a healthy soil um, will handle, you know, disturbance events and, and bounce back much faster and easier than something that was already in a state of, you know, uh, diminished quality or health um, or poor health. So uh, what's there for me is like an animal that's had a great life, um, you know, those those little disturbance events aren't going to be as detrimental. And what is also there for me is like, I wonder what it would take or like what could be some of the parameters that we could use because, you know, for you, like, that's a real potential selling point. And, like, it's one thing for you to have a conversation with someone buying a cut of meat off you about that animal. But let's say someone buys something over the internet. What are some of the parameters you could use that that has the consumer understand that this animal has had a good life? Oh, you mean to let them know that they're buying something that the animal's had of those life? Um, yeah. Or even, like, in a world of everything being, you know, whether it be certifiable or regulatable, like how do you measure? How do you measure an animal that's had a great life? Mm. Oh, no, I yeah. mean, no, no kettle prodders would be one thing, right? But what, what yeah, you know, because I know... I mean, it's hard, isn't it? The more you regulate, I don't know. I, I'm not a huge fan of regulation. I think people should do what they do because they want to and they believe in it, not because there's a big stick that's waved over them that says they, you have to. Because if you really believe in what you're doing, you will do a better job of it. So if you really believe that your animals, you know, you want your animals to lead the best life you, they possibly can and, you know, up until the time that they're not around any longer, then, then they will because you believe in that. But if you're only doing it because you're forced to do it, I don't think that will help. And I think... I don't know, I think we've got to trust people. Trust is a difficult thing because you open it up and people can, you know, do the wrong thing. You if you if you say, oh look, we just trust people, then there are always going to be people who let the side down. But I think the vast majority of people, if they feel that they're trusted, won't won't want to um, won't want to go against your trust. So they will do the right thing. Do you know what I mean? They because you know you don't it's just a, a moral thing, I think, inside people and I think we've got to trust our farmers more to to do the right thing and I think generally farmers are trying to change their ways and do different things and explore and experiment and it is a little bit scary I mean I've my life's been I mean I've had so much training and change when I was in education I mean that's what education's about change you know so you know but you know and I've taken that I suppose it brought that into the farming environment and just you know you learn to embrace it and it is a bit scary at times and you worry about 
mean, I worry about the paperwork side of things. I worry about having to write down on pieces of paper everything I'm doing because someone might look over my shoulder. I mean, I'm not really into paperwork, but yeah, I'm, the, the whole idea of changing my farming practices to be a bit more environmentally friendly or to, to suit a different you know, market for my products, I mean, I don't have any problems with that because that's, that's just life, isn't it? You change and adapt or you don't, <laughs> you don't make it. And something you said before we started the podcast really, really struck for me is like, um, create for the for the listeners, Adam, if you will, that comment about you know the 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 murky water and and oh. sometimes we can be scared to. Yeah. So yeah, that's it. The the water doesn't always have to be clear. You can dip your toes into murky water. It's okay, and the water will clear. You know, and it's okay to be murky to start with. I mean, that's something that we used to talk about a lot in education is about that, you know, when you're changing to something or you're learning something new and you don't really know and you're a bit worried about it and there's, you know, the anxiety levels building, it is a bit murky and you don't really know. You're thinking, you know, oh, am I doing the right thing? Is this good? This is bad. What's going to happen? And you start, you know, you have all those worries and that, that's just part of the process. But after a while, they go away and the water's clear again, you know, so... You're just gonna you're just gonna be happy to to be in that little little environment for a little while. And what do the people coming to stay on your on your farm have to say? Do you ever get feedback? Oh, are they eating your meat for a start? That's something I really want to know. Are you offering yeah, that yeah, as yeah, part yeah. of your? Yep, we we offer. Yeah, they can they can yeah they can we have packs they can. They can have a gourmet beef barbecue pack or they can have the gourmet lamb pack or they can do the um, the breakfast pack if they want to and things like that. And we, you know, some of them leave and they come past the butchery and they, you know, take a few things away. And some of them, is, you know, that relationship, they order when they go back to Dunedin or Christchurch or something, you know, they're ordering via the internet. And of course, they know exactly where the food's come from because they've seen the place it comes from. So they know... They know, you know, they just, well, you know, they've got that connection, haven't they? And I think that makes, you know, makes it feel, feel, feel them better. But yeah, no, they, they and I think the, feed, the feedback's good. I mean, uh, we've had a lot of feedback about the animals because they're a bit unusual and people aren't used to seeing them. So there's a lot of feedback about those. Um, yeah, and, you know, just the different things growing in the paddocks and why we've got that there and, you know, why we're chosen to do what we do. Um, yeah, I think the accommodation is interesting because we take our lifestyle for granted living in the country. But when you go and visit the cities, I mean, I didn't you know, like we're in Auckland for that competition not, not a couple of weeks ago now. And just the busyness of it all, you know, just walking around and looking at how busy people are and they're just busy, busy. We're all busy, but, you know, I just I can I understand why people would want to come and sit on the hill and sit in a hot tub and just look at the look at the sea and just do nothing, you know, just 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 to let it all go. I think you just got to do, yeah, just give stuff a go away. Don't, don't, you know, take risks, take calculated risks. Don't be, but don't be, you know, but take risks. Don't bet the house on it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> at least of course you built it yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. At least you've kept, kept the costs down and you can afford to yeah, yeah. the house down, but yeah. Adam, what would like just on that note as we as we wrap up, what would you say to someone, you know, because I know for a lot of people they are interested in, you know, different ways of doing things. Certainly people are starting to open their eyes to, you know, diverse um, you know, income streams and 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 enterprises on farm. Um, what would you say to someone who's maybe interested, but they're like, uh, you know, whether it be something like, you know, infrastructure with fencing on farm, you know, smaller paddocks, or whether it be something like you've created the opportunity that on-farm accommodation is, and maybe even as far as, you know, um, produce. What would you say to those people who are perhaps interested, but maybe a bit unsure? Um, well, you know, ask around. You know, there's heaps of stuff on the internet, eh? Start you know, start conditioning your thinking, I suppose, would be the first thing. So, you know, find out, find, you know, start, find out what you don't know, you know, um, think of, you know, see what other people have done. Look at your own, you know, your own setup, what you've got that, you know, what your land can do, what you can do, what the skills you have and, you know, opportunities that are here and, you know, look to adapt what other people have done to make it fit with what you've, you've done. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily go out and copy what someone else has done, but I would adapt 
probably what someone else has done to what um, could be done here. Um, it just, yeah, I think, oh yeah, I think it's that, it's that mental mindset, isn't it? Like, if, if you think the brain is a, um, I don't know, we like, we like the comfort. We like, the brain likes to be doing what the brain has always done. And you've got to mix it up a bit. And, you know, I think that's it. It's about mixing it up. So trying to get that, because your brain is a pattern finding machine. It likes a pattern. So if your pattern has been, I go to work at nine o'clock and I come home at five and I have a coffee at six and I, then that's what your brain will like because so you've got to mix it up a bit. So you've got to start conditioning your brain to doing some different stuff, you know? But I mean, I did talk to a farm, I've got a good mate who's a farmer and we talked about this stuff and he said to me, look, you're always doing this, these crazy things, Adam. And I said, well, yeah, we do because I said, we got this bit of land and we haven't, we haven't had, I suppose, the the easy road of, look, it was dad's farm and we inherited it and then we moved on and all those sorts of things. So we've had to think outside of the square to get it going. And he said, well, what holds us back? He said, is it really, we're worried that if we change what we've done, we might not make any money, you know, because in the past, you know, things is that, you know, we, we've got a system that works and we don't want to change that system because for us that works. But, you know, the thing is it could, but if you don't keep changing things, you might not know, you might be something better out there. You don't have to change your whole system, just start tweaking bits of it. And then, you know, if that works, tweak a bit more, just keep tweaking. And then all of a sudden you've found you've changed your whole system and it hasn't fallen down on you. It hasn't been like a crazy dramatic uh, overnight. Was it Joel Sullivan says, he says, you can go, uh, you can go and be a nudist. Or you can go and be a Buddhist, but you won't get away with being a nudist Buddhist. No, exactly. Yeah. Oh, look, you've got to, it's got to fit with what you want to do and what you believe in and all those things. All that, that brain stuff is pretty, yeah. I remember saying, you, you know, you, your brain can override your body, but your body can't override your brain. So if you're feeling really knackered, if your body's physically tired and your brain's still fresh and healthy, your brain will make your body do things that, you, you know, the body's probably saying, I don't want to do, but you can't do it the other way around. Mm. So you've got to get, it's all about conditioning that brain, really getting getting you out, out of your comfort zone, doing things that, you you know, that are a little bit awkward, that you feel a little bit anxious about, um, but just getting through that that process, yeah. Adam, thank you so much for your time tonight, man. I really appreciate it. I know you're a busy man. I've been had this podcast lined up for a little bit now and just getting getting it in the evenings to work around your already busy schedule, mate. I just want to acknowledge you for taking the time to share your experience and your and your wisdom with with the listeners. Oh yeah. No, it's good. It's good. Oh no, we've got to share. That's it. We've got to share my knowledge is knowledge is key. And we shouldn't be, I think we shouldn't be frightened of sharing what we're doing to for others. You know, because everyone can do their own thing and we can all do, you know, all do a good job of it and we all can make money and we can all, you know, contribute. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's about working competitively. I think it's about working collaboratively, really, because um, there's a big world that needs feeding. <laughs> it's only getting bigger. <laughs> and they need fed well, mate. They need fed well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hi, good to talk to you, Jono. Likewise, Adam. Cheers. Bye. Take it easy. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.